Hello and welcome. This is the Tao of Color podcast, and I've got a little bit of a smile on my face, a little bit of a laugh in my voice, because it's been, what, three years since I've done this podcast? Is this podcast even going to come back to life? Who knows? All I know is that A lot has happened since in those three years. I've launched one new website. I relaunched an older website. Uh, My personal color grading business has been doing really well. I moved to a brand new state, 1,200 miles almost. Uh, Certainly brand new weather down here in Florida from where I was up in New York City. And so I've had a ton going on and the podcast fell by the wayside. Will the podcast be coming back long term? We shall see. I have some definite ideas about that. But you know what? Today is not the day to talk about that. Today is to talk about what I do have in store for you, which is an interview with Brom Desmet from Flanders Scientific. Not only was Brom one of the very first people I ever interviewed on this podcast, he's also a sponsor, and his company is a sponsor of the thetowofcolorgrading.com. He's also a sponsor of my free weekly newsletter, he's just an all-around great guy. It's been four years since I interviewed him for this podcast. And let me tell you, just a little bit has changed. I mean, back when I talked with him four years ago, you'll go back and listen to that podcast, we actually spent a little bit of time talking about CRTs, if you can imagine that, right? Today, we're talking about OLEDs. Today, we're talking about Rec 2020 and 4K. And well, not exactly today. You see, I spoke with him for about two hours, and there's no way I'm going to force you to sit here and listen to this podcast for two hours. So I'm breaking it up into three parts. The first part, we're going to be talking gear, hardware. We're going to be talking about what is FSI's lineup, What is it that they do differently from other people? But this is not going to be one big advertisement. We're going to end up talking about how these panels get distributed, how Sony versus Panasonic versus FSI, what are the differences that they each put into their displays to differentiate themselves based on the fact that, you know what, most of these panels are all being manufactured in the exact same factory. So what we're buying as professionals has a lot to do with what they do as professionals when they prep the displays to sell to people like us. So that's what we're gonna be talking about right now. In part two, we're gonna be talking about calibration and color spaces, and we're gonna get more into that type of thing. And then in part three, we're gonna be looking forward to the future about things like Rec 2020. What does that mean to us as colorists? So here we go part one of my interview with Brom Desmet, and I hope you enjoy it, and it's great to be doing this again. All right, I'm here now sitting virtually with Brom Desmet from Flanders Scientific, and Brom, welcome back to the podcast. It has been, believe it or not, four years. <laughs> it seems like yesterday. It does. It's kind of crazy. And unlike the last time we talked, at that time we had really no relationship other than I loved your gear. Uh, This time around, we do have a relationship in that, you know, FSI is a sponsor of Tawa Color. You guys have been a sponsor when I've done my live training. You've been a sponsor of that. You're a sponsor of my online training. I hugely appreciate that. But I just wanted to get that out up front, let people know that, you know, if, if this starts sounding a bit like a love fest, it's because I really do love you guys. I love, I love your technology and, uh, and the way you operate your business. 
Well, we appreciate it, uh, Pat, and we, we really like what you got going on and um, the training and the Mixing Light um, uh, site um, yep. as well have been a great resource for a lot of people, and uh, you're a rock star. <laughs> you know, everywhere we go, people drop your that's name. That's a bizarre so thing. It works both that's, ways. That's bizarre for me to hear. But uh, all right, so <laughs> Love Fest is over. Let's get into what people want to talk about, which is understanding displays and color gamuts and white points and technology and the future. We're going to cover all of that, and but we're going to start off by saying, all right, in the last podcast, we answered that Ned Flanders does not work for you. We know that. No, no, okay. he does not. The question is, you're just still a little family operation, right? There are like, what, three of you running this thing? Uh, <laughs> no, there's a, we, we've, grown, we've grown considerably. I think we have uh, 12 people on payroll here. We've got two in Europe. And then uh, our joint venture partner in uh, in Shenzhen probably has, oh gosh, I'd say maybe twenty five people or so, um, something something on that order. So yeah, we, we've grown we've grown a good bit. Um, kind of uh, funny now is that we actually have an office in Flanders, uh, so <laughs> kind of come full circle and uh, made good on that. Well, name. that's cool. And yes, yeah, and that's your European presence, of course. And that's one of the big changes since we last spoke as far as FSI kind of the corporate entity is. I mean, you guys now you've got an international footprint physically. Um, and can you talk a little bit about, um, how that works? What's happening out of your European Sure. Yeah. I mean, what, what we, we, we always kind of try to lead by service and, and that's not something we just pay lip service to. I mean, we really, we really try to take that seriously. So we've been selling internationally, um, basically since we started. Uh, but once we had enough of a customer base in Europe, what we did is we actually started a service office. So we weren't doing any direct sales out of there. We didn't want to get ahead of ourselves. We were just there to, you know, support people with respect to repairs and calibrations and things like that. So kind of started off, uh, you know, on the small scale. Um, then about this time last year, after about 18 months or so of running a service office, um, we decided to transition that to a service and sales outfit. Uh, and this just worked out incredibly well. Um, Europe has become a, a really big part of our business now. Uh, something we're going to continue to focus on in the future, um, and uh, it's it's really it's really grown quite a bit. Now you know North America is still our, our largest market, but Europe has uh, consistently grown every year to be a larger and larger portion of that. And we're also growing in other places. We've we've seen a lot of pickup in in Singapore and Australia and New Zealand. Um, it's it's been uh, you know pretty amazing to see just how far some of our monitors have gone. Well, and while we're talking about the European uh, operation, I did get a question because I posted on liftgammagain.com, which is a a website dedicated to uh, colorists and the craft of color correction. And uh, one of the questions I got, this came from Ian W. Gray, uh, why don't you list your prices on your European site? Oh, so yeah, so that, that's a good question. Um, you know, there, there's a couple different reasons. One is we don't actually run a web shop there. So the way we do business in Europe is still a little bit more old fashioned. You send us an email request or call us, we provide you with an official quote. And then, uh, and then we work out the transaction that way. Uh, whereas with the U.S. and really uh, even internationally areas outside of Europe, we do have um, a web shop. Now, that will probably change. Um, so we, ha we don't have it ready yet, but we have actively been talking about 
launching a web shop. And at that time, of course, the pricing would be there in euros for all to see. That being said, our pricing is no secret. It is, uh, as far as the monitors uh, go specifically, um, it's almost an exact exchange rate conversion from what the US price is. So we don't mark it up a ton. Sometimes for some of the really large monitors, there may be a little bit of an extra charge. Uh, for some of the logistics and freight involved in getting it to Europe. Uh, but, um, but other than that, it's, it's pretty straightforward and you can email us at any time. We'll send you a complete price list of all of our products uh, and we can also provide official quotes for you. So it's not like we're trying to, to keep our pricing secret. We, we're pretty uh, willing to share that information globally. Um, and the other thing is, uh, you know, one of the reasons we've been apprehensive to kind of plaster it on a website uh, has been that you know anybody who's paid attention to the euro as of late has seen that the, the currency is just absolutely you know crumbled. So we've had to make some price adjustments. But again, those are all straightforward. We uh, you know we we provide quotes with an expiration date, and you know if you order before that expiration date, that price you were quoted is good. All very straightforward. But uh, so those are the reasons. But uh, again, that's likely to change in the not too distant future as we uh, start to gear up to get an online store going in Europe. Now, as well. I want to continue talking a little bit about FSI, and then we're going to get into technology and kind of all this agnostic sure. stuff. But I, I think it's important for people who don't know you, people who haven't listened to the previous podcast, understand a little bit about uh, the background of FSI and, and what you guys offer. And so, one of my initial, and we've talked about this, and I probably even mentioned it on the last podcast. One of my initial uh, impressions about Flanders Scientific when I first heard of you guys is these guys are nuts. They're competing against Sony. Who the heck yeah. <laughs> competes against Sony on displays? And so my question now is, how's that been going? <laughs> It's been going incredibly well, um, you know, and it, it, it's kind of in our blood. Uh, my father, who's uh, one of the co-founders of, of Flanders Scientific, was actually um, a, um, a a Barco guy for for a very long time. So this competing with Sony and other brands has has been something that I've grown up around, literally. Uh, so that that doesn't that doesn't deter us, and um, you know, we think we offer. Uh, a real added value when you when you go with Flanders. We, you know, we try to do things a, a little bit differently from the way we implement the technology to the way that we support the product um, to the way even that we sell the product. I mean, er everything about it is uh, pretty atypical when you compare it to other large monitor manufacturers. Um, but we've been doing quite well. Um, we've been growing at. Um, at an incredible rate, we've I think since we last talked, we've moved uh, three times. <laughs> so we're in a much much larger facility now. We just needed more warehouse space and more room to put more people. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it certainly we haven't been hurt. Well, you know, I, I think I was at an event of yours in November, and we did this cool little wheeling me through your facility. Uh, and I just, I never got around to pulling that and checking that footage out. So I'll do that and I'll post it with this podcast if it's any good. Like, it's like my first time using, you know, a Blackmagic pocket camera. I'm not a DP. So yeah. if I'm not embarrassed by it, I'll post it. Um, and I'll give it to you guys too. Yeah. And, and so now when Sounds we spoke good. four years ago, you had a seven inch monitor, a 17 inch mm -hmm. LCD and a 24 inch LCD. That was your entire product line. Uh, what's yep. changed? <laughs> uh, a lot. We we do everything from seven to a fifty inch monitor. 
Uh, we do LCDs with back then. It was basically uh, LCDs with fluorescent backlights were pretty. Yeah. Much you good. had an L- LED um, as well. I think you had the edge lit LEDs. As well, I think edge lit LED. Yeah, but you know now we basically we do we do just about everything. So we have. Um, you know, white LED backlight LCDs. We've got RGB backlight, uh, RGB LED backlight LCDs. We have CCFL LCDs still. Um, we have OLED, of course. Uh, so we, we certainly have tried to cater to a lot of different needs. Um, we've added uh, additional sizes. Um, you know, a, a big shift that we've seen too is just the, uh, the popularity of kind of that 21 and a half inch style monitor has grown a lot too. So um, you know, it used to be the interest was either in 24 inch for the suite or 17 inch for the field. Now we've got a lot of people who use the 21s in the field or use the 24s in the field. And, you know, 17 is still a popular size, but, um, just the, the needs of the industry in general have changed a lot. And we, we've tried to keep up with that and, and to provide new and kind of interesting and exciting solutions. Um, uh, you know, and the evolution of that has got into really just every aspect of the display and that, you know, everything in our lineup except for our 7-inch monitor, even our 9-inch and up, they're all native HD now, and that that just wasn't the case four years ago. So that's just one simple example of a big change. Well, and that gets us to another lift gamma gain question, which <laughs> when we before we started this podcast, I told you I'm going to save these for the end, but this actually seems like a good time yeah. to ask. Uh, no and worries. it comes from Stott's, uh, Scott Stacy from Kansas City, and uh, he says, do you have any plans to compete with the ESO CG277, which I did a little research on because he says there's a wide gap between your CM171, which is a 17-inch, and the CM240, which is a 24-inch. And that particular brand that he's comparing you to, it's something like a $2,400 display, $21 to $2,400, 27-inch. It has a cool feature that has a built-in probe for calibration. Um, It's Mm -hmm. got... It does 99% of the Adobe RGB color splay. It's 10-bit out of the display port. Of course, that means you need a 10-bit GPU. Uh, native yeah. 2560 by 1440. So it seems like a, a pretty good display. But And I'll just editorialize here a bit and say, well, it has no SDI inputs. It has no scopes. It has no, you know, some of the things that you guys do, which we haven't really quite talked about, do you have plans to compete with those types of displays? Uh, well, you're asking me at a very <laughs> interesting time. So let me just say that we we hear you loud and clear, and we know that there's a demand, and uh, that that's about all I can I can say at this point without having uh, the rest of the staff <laughs> here uh, murder me. So, uh, but but you know we we understand that there's a market need there uh, that deserves to be addressed. Um, I will say that. Um, you know, you, you do have kind of a, a lack of good panel choices once you get above about 24 and a half, uh, 25 inch, um, till you get back over to the 40 inch and above. Um, one of the classic problems you have with uh, computer monitors at that 27 and 28, 30 inch size is that the resolution doesn't work well for video applications. So something that's 2560 wide really doesn't do a good job for you because you're not gonna be using all the screen real estate if you wanna see things pixel for pixel, or you're gonna be doing some scaling that you know doesn't, doesn't do a particularly good job because you don't have uh, kind of a simple way to scale. It's not like you're scaling one pixel to four or anything like that. 
Um, you're, you're doing complex scaling that tends to have artifacts, um, and uh, it's just not ideal. So um, size-wise, I'm not sure that you'll ever see anything from us in, in, the, in the near term uh, to compete with you know, a 27-inch monitor per se, but cost and bit depth, those are all real areas that we've been trying to find creative ways to better address that market need. Um, that being said, I will say that, you know, if you're doing color correction, you're doing, you know, film out or well, film out, who's doing that anymore? <laughs> but, uh, maybe, you know, if you're doing, if you're doing DCPs and things like that, then yeah, you know, 10 bits important, wide gamut's important. We do have a lot of customers though, who find that our 21 and a half inch and 23 inch monitors are, are perfectly well suited for broadcast or web-based uh, output. So it's an 8-bit panel. You know, you're going to have a more limited color gamut. It's basically Rec. 709 color gamut, uh, but still accurate enough to where we have networks that use them for editing and what I would call, you know, light-duty color correction. So um, if color correction isn't your full-time thing and you're budget-conscious, but you still want a professional broadcast monitor, we already have options like that. Um, but, but, you know, the poster was right in, in mentioning that, you know, there is a big gap obviously in that 10 bit series between that $2,500 17 inch and that, uh, that $5,500 24 inch. Now, Brom, back when we initially talked, CRTs were just about, they were gasping their last breaths and LCD was taking the place. OLED hadn't quite come up yet. It was still in the future. And we were at a weird place. And, and one of the things that we talked about in our last podcast was just how few manufacturers there are of these kind of raw materials that you're buying from. Uh, that, you know, when you look at the various brands of professional displays, all of you are essentially buying from the same few sources and the differences tend to be in what you do afterwards. Is that still the case? Yeah, it's, it's very much the case. If anything, it's gotten worse on the high end. Um, and that has to do with the same thing we talked about last time. is this capital investment required to, to build these plants and to modernize these plants and to refit them and to get the next gens going. Uh, I mean, just, you know, it doesn't take much to, uh, you know, read through some of the, the trades and, and see, you know, the type of investments we're talking about for, for the serious suppliers of these things. Um, you know, LG just announced that they're investing another $900 million <laughs> uh, in, in OLED. They're basically doubling down. But, uh, and that's after investing, you know, on the orders of billions before that. So, um, you know, it's not something that even a medium-sized, um, uh, you know, professional broadcast monitor manufacturer is doing. Even the really, really big guys, you know, the, 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 the guys who are also consumer electronics brands, um, yes, they use some of the panels that might come from their own kind of semiconductor industries, um, but they also use panels from some of the other big suppliers. So it's not unusual to see, you know, two people who compete on the uh, consumer electronics front. Uh, when you talk about professional, they're using each other's panels in their in their pro products. So 
you know, without getting into specific names, uh, you, you definitely see um, some of these big companies using panels that aren't necessarily made by their own own factories. So, uh, yeah, it's it's all about the back end electronics. It's about uh, the calibration. It's about uh, the feature set. I mean, that that's really what sets it apart. And then, of course, the company selling it and how they choose to support. And we're going to get to all of that very shortly. I want to back up a bit on the to the manufacturing side because I, I'm personally fascinated by all of this right and and so i mean if if let's take lg and their oleds right do they have like a mini production line that's just you know stamping out displays meant for the professional market like how do they decide what goes to professional markets and what goes to consumer markets no, it's it's very much the same um, same process that um, that we discussed. I think a few years ago. I think we touched on this. That it, nobody makes panels uh, just for the pro industry. It's simply too small. You never get back even a nine hundred million dollar investment. Um, and again, that was just an additional investment in that particular scenario. So um, what it is, is, you know, you, you have displays that are made for other larger markets. So for uh, computer graphics displays, for consumer television market, um, another really big one um, that's been helpful in, in keeping OLED alive in, in some scenarios has been the medical right. market. So there are, there are big, uh, big industrial and medical applications. Um, so what ends up happening is you you kind of get a binning process going. So you know they they bin the panels at the supply side sometimes. So out of the actual factory, they say, hey, these are our grade A panels. These are our grade B panels. Um, and then also uh, when they get to manufacturers, some of the manufacturers will test the panels. They will um, you know in our in our example, I can tell you that. You know, there's some big suppliers that we get panels from, and um, it's it varies. You know, with with some panels, um, we we get in a shipment of, you know, whatever it might be, a box of say 200 panels, and they may all be good, or 99% of them may be good. But we've also had scenarios where we order, you know, uh, 100 panels, and 75 of them have to be sent mm. back, and only 25 are usable. So. So we do our own kind of internal bidding, and then some companies go a step further, um, and you know they they'll get the same exact panel, and then they class it in a number of different ways, and they use the the high end version in their more expensive product, and then they use that same panel in a less expensive product. So, you know, the less you spend, the lower quality the panel is typically, even though it may be the same, you know, model number, so to speak, of the actual raw panel being used. So in this binning process. Uh and you're looking at LCDs. Let's start with LCDs. How do you grade an LCD? What is it that you're looking at that if you don't get this out of it, you're going to send it back? Yeah. So we check for uh, we check for things like um, like uh, contrast ratio, off-axis viewing. Those things, you know, in theory, should be pretty static uh, in a model run. But there are variations, and if they don't uh, kind of adhere to the uh, usually you have pre-agreed upon conditions with the supplier. So you say, you know, this is going to be what we find acceptable with respect to off-access, with respect to contrast, with respect to uniformity. So you, you test for all those things. You make sure that they meet the preconditions, and then uh, and go from there. But um, and, and it can be difficult to negotiate that. You know, the 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 flip side of of no one really making panels specifically just for the professional industry 
is that you, we also don't have a ton of leverage. Right. So we, you know, we pay more basically to get the best panels. But even then, you know, you, you do have variations in, in uniformity and uh, off-access. I'm kind of surprised uh, to hear about off-access uniformity. I, I think that it, you know, it just, it is what it is. And, and like once you design it, that's what it always ends up being. I mean, like how far, how far is the tolerance on that? It, you know, and uh, I don't want to exaggerate the point. On most panels, there is a negligible okay. difference from unit to unit. Um, we've come across a few in the past, you know, uh, five years or so, though we're, we see higher degrees of variability. And um, it's usually not kind of out of the accepted thresholds. Uh, but we definitely have seen some that needed to be kicked back. And you also look for things like uh, Mora and, you know, there, there's, there, there, there's, there's all sorts of imperfections that can exist. Um, and it's, it's just basically a, a simple enough QC process to see whether it meets the predefined, uh, predefined conditions that you agreed with the supplier. And I know you've said in the past that LCDs, when they're going to fail, is usually very early. So you can Correct. catch it very early. You do a burn-in process, yeah. um, and you can catch when these things fail. Is that also built into your agreement with the manufacturer, or is that just, you know, you end up eating it and that's that? Uh, no, usually within a certain window, and that's going to vary from supplier to supplier, but within a certain window, if there's a particular type of imperfection or failure, um, you know, it's not, and I don't want to say that it's the burn-in is not just for the raw panel. I mean, right. uh, you know, it, it's an ele- it's a piece of electronics, and other yeah. things can fail. Things that that you know, we make keypads and and processor boards and and power supplies. Those are all things that that can fail as well. So we're kind of testing the complete unit. And if any one of those components were, were to fail, of course, then we basically start from scratch. Same thing with, with, with the panel, though. Um, you know, something that, that will fail in, in an LCD is the actual point where the cable connects inside the panel. And, and that's one of the big things that we're testing for is to make sure that that little board, that little print circuit board doesn't fail. But like you said, most failures, most issues kind of show themselves within that first 24 to 48 hours. So we actually have two burn-in periods. We have a burn-in period at the actual factory before units are packed and, and, and sent to our distribution and headquarters here in Atlanta. And then we have an additional um, uh, QC and burn-in period at our facility here in Atlanta. So um, we kind of double up on that. And that has a lot to do with just the distance that the units travel. We want to make sure that they uh, leave the factory in good condition, arrive here in good condition, and go back out to the customer uh, in good condition. So uh, the calibration is actually done here uh, anyway. So when we get that from the factory and then we do our calibration, uh, at, after we do that calibration, we let them sit in our burn-in room and, uh, and just make sure there are no issues. Now, we've been talking about LCDs. When OLEDs, when you evaluate those, are they graded differently? Are there different things you're looking for than you're looking for an LCD? Or is it pretty much all the same? It, it's similar. Um, we, we have, uh, again, just like with any supplier, with the OLED supplier, we have certain minimum guarantees in terms of you know, what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. Honestly, with OLED panels, we don't see a lot of problems. Uh, the type of OLED problem that you would see would be Hey, it doesn't turn on. <laughs> outside <laughs> That's of that, a problem. <laughs> outside of that, they're pretty darn solid. And and a pure power failure or pure failure rate on an OLED panel 
that we get is very, very low. Um, is really um, is quite astounding. You know, you get exceptional like uniformity is, you know, it's so darn good on an OLED that even the worst ones that we pick out of a batch, you know, blow away what an LCD can do. So it it is a pretty astounding piece of technology and the problems are pretty few and far between on those. Well, I know that early on, I mean, OLEDs are so expensive because the yields were so terrible. Correct. Have their yields gotten better or are they yeah. just better at identifying bad OLEDs? It's kind of either works or it doesn't type of thing. Uh, yields have certainly improved significantly. You know, in the early days, we kind of got percentages of that that were reported publicly. Nowadays, I haven't really heard an updated figure on, you know, specifically where we get our panels from, what their what their actual manufacturing yields are. But certainly the panels that we get tend not to be problematic. Very, very few panels need to go back uh, to the supplier. So now let's uh, get everyone up to date on the current state of LCDs. Yep. Uh, there are a whole bunch of different types. You kind of rattled off a bunch before. You got white LED LCDs. You've got RGB LED LCDs. You've got, I mean, all of these edge lit, all of these different things going on. So where are we? And, and really more importantly, from a professional standpoint, what should you be looking at and why would you pick one over the other? Well, I think overall LCDs have gotten a lot better. Um, certainly in the professional sphere, you see a lot less of the older technologies. You don't tend to see the, the TN style panels anymore. The majority of panels are IPS or something similar to IPS, uh, which is generally uh, quite good. Um, and you certainly... Uh, the main And IPS stands for in-plane switching, In-plane right? switching, yeah. And you have a few variations of that. You have SIPS, you have HIPS. Um, our CM240 still uses a HIPS, which is a horizontal in-plane switching that improves viewing along the horizontal plane specifically, actually, which is kind of nice because you can get several people lined up side by side and they're, they're looking at the same colors. So the big, I think the big things that have changed are that there, there's a much wider selection of 10-bit panels. There's the, you know, except for very few manufacturers of really, really inexpensive LCD panels in the professional sphere. Most panels are at least 8-bit now. There used to be a lot more 6-bit panels. There are a few notable exceptions in the market, but uh, certainly at Flanders Scientific, we, we wouldn't carry anything that isn't at least an 8-bit panel anymore. So, so that's, those have all been positive changes. Uh, backlight technology has certainly changed a lot. There's good and there's bad to that. LED has become a lot more popular as a backlight choice. The huge advantage on, on that front has been uh, basically no warm-up time. You turn them on, they're ready to use. The other great thing is much lower power consumption. For, so for the guys using them in the field, you know, our current 17 inch is almost twice as efficient as some of our earliest 17 inch monitors. So they run mm -hmm. off of batteries a lot longer, they're lighter weight, but there are trade-offs, uh, you know, um, going away from CCFL backlights, uh, you have a lot more panels that are narrower gamut now, not wide gamut. Um, now it's slowly starting to change again. We see some white LED now that can even be wide gamut. RGB LED can be wide gamut. So we're starting to claw back there, something that we'd actually lost with you know, CCFL because with CCFL, you could get wide gamut CCFL that 
could could do extremely wide color gamuts. Still, you know, some of the widest color gamuts that are in use are, are still from CCFL backlights. So there's been a lot of important changes uh, with respect to that. And a lot of it has centered around those actual uh, backlight technologies. But also things like off-access viewing uh, have improved dramatically, um, uh, especially on the high-end panels. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the current current layout. There's a ton of options. Um, things are going to continue to kind of get interesting uh, as new technologies uh, come out. Contrast ratios will continue to improve. You know, these days it's it's very common to have at least a thousand to one contrast ratio on an LCD, and, and that used to be kind of the the high end of the the market, and now that's just kind of par for the course. Everybody expects to have at least a thousand to one contrast. And you know, when we spoke four years ago, we were talking about CCFLs, and there was a big thought that CCFLs were going to go away uh, as a result of environmental concerns, especially in the EU. Uh, where are we with that? Yeah. So, um, you know, it hasn't been killed yet. <laughs> right. So, but, uh, but there, there, there is the possibility uh, or there is uh, a growing concern and a call to kind of phase that out. Um, more interestingly, um, you know, I think that the panel manufacturers got out ahead of that a little bit. Um, and um, we're able to put a lot of kind of marketing hype behind LED. And there's some other advantages to, to LEDs in terms of, you know, them being a little bit more durable and solid state. CCFL bulbs are a little more fragile. Um, so they're, they got out ahead of it, in my opinion, in a really kind of effective way. And the marketing has really uh, led itself to make LED pretty much preferred in most instances, um, especially on the consumer side, you know, much slimmer TVs, much more power efficient. Um, on the professional side, there's still some people who really hate anything that's LED backlit. And, and I understand that, but uh, certainly for field use and for economical monitors for editing, um, LED ha has been able to provide uh, some very, very good choices at some very reasonable prices. But your high-end monitor, if you take a look at like your flagship 10-bit displays, they're still running CCFL, correct? Um, just the only CCFL monitor left in our lineup is actually the CM240. Um, right. Everything else is either white LED, uh, RGB LED backlight, or going to be an OLED panel. Um, so yeah, it's... It, it's definitely changing, and uh, I, I can attest to the fact that CCFL is getting harder and harder to find. Um, and, you know, it does have its drawbacks. You know, it, certainly the uh, the warm up time being one of the biggest ones. Uh, something right. that that you know, in an edit suite or a color correction application, is not as important. But we see, especially the the guys using monitors in the field, just don't have patience for CCFL anymore. You know, sometimes, yeah. especially in a cold environment, having to wait forty five minutes before you can make a color critical decision on your monitor is just not acceptable. And we fully understand that. Now, the lifespan of LCDs has that also improved over the last couple of years? Well, so that's the interesting thing. Um, wide gamut CCFL still the king of longevity. Uh, you're rated mm. at sixty thousand hours on our CM two forty. Wow. The, the LED backlights, by and large, are rated at 30,000 hours, and similarly, the OLEDs are going to be rated at 30,000 hours. So that's another area where we've, as an industry, kind of taken a step backwards. Now, that being said, most people don't run their monitors 24-7, and even if you do, you've got four-plus years on it at that sort of a, a, a lifespan. So 
you know, the way the monitor technology is evolving, most people are ready to turn in and get something new at four to five years. Um, and if, if you're the type of person who is going to hold on to the monitor for 10 years, as long as you're only using it, you know, eight hours a day or something like that, it should be able to last that long. Now, when we spoke four years ago, you had a true 10-bit panel that was about eight or $9,000. And when we spoke, you had just basically started to discontinue that because yeah. you had the step below that was basically half the cost. It was 10-bit FRC. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, where are we with that? Are we back to true 10-bit panels? Is everything FRC? Can you explain what FRC is? So, um, yeah, it's basically, it's a... Um it's a it's a type of dithering, but I, I I don't like to use the word dithering because yeah, dithering it, has a bad name. It has a bad name, and yeah. it's not quite the same thing. Uh, what I will tell you is that that is still implemented in the CM240, but on anything else that we sell that's 10-bit, we're actually looking at um, a native 10-bit driver these days. And the CM240 uh, has been a very popular unit. People really like the value that it offers for, for the display performance that you get. But, you know, it's, it's obviously uh, an older technology. It's a panel that's been around for quite a while. Things have evolved to the point where it is actually not terribly expensive to make the 10-bit drivers anymore. Right. Uh, so people typically just put in 10-bit drivers, and we see very little of the, um, of the panel side kind of FRC type technologies. Uh, but you do get, um, uh, you do still get that just on the CM240. But again, that's kind of the exception in the lineup. Everything else is going to be a native 10-bit driver inside the panel. And uh, what about on the OLED side? Or what, what's happening on the 10-bitness the of OLEDs? Well, uh, so basically, um, the OLEDs that we carry are the, the two sides of the 16 and a half and the 24 and a half are both native 10-bit panel drivers. All of our monitors now throughout our lineup do 12-bit uh, processing and 12-bit input support, but the panel itself on the OLEDs is 10-bit. Uh, there are 8-bit OLED panels, but they're almost exclusively in small sizes. So a lot of the, um, you know, 7-inch or smaller OLED panels that you see kind of as a viewfinder monitors and things like that, those are typically going to be limited to 8-bit. But the larger stuff is is almost exclusively 10-bit. I can't can't recall ever seeing an OLED over 9 inches that is actually uh, using an 8-bit driver. So, And this is from the source? This is from uh, from your suppliers? And from then, the panel suppliers, yeah. And then so is that what's happening on the consumer side as well? Correct, yeah. So on the consumer side, it's the same thing. Um, you do get uh, you do get almost exclusively 10-bit drivers. Even on the LCD front, we, we've seen mm -hmm. that you know the 10-bit drivers have gotten so affordable that you see it being implemented in most of the large-scale panels being built. There, there's not much of a cost savings to be had in going with 8-bit from from uh, from us sourcing from suppliers until we get back to like our 21 and a half inch monitor and our 23 inch 8-bit monitors. There we're able to offer considerable cost savings because those panels with their 8-bit drivers still cost a lot less from the suppliers than their kind of 10-bit equivalents. So, but, uh, but that savings is really limited in very, you know, very kind of limited size. Uh, everything kind of 23 inches and below, there's a cost savings to be had going 8-bit, but 
larger, there's virtually no cost savings. In fact, some of the 8-bit panels that we can get our hands on actually cost more than the 10-bit equivalent. So it doesn't make sense sometimes. So let's talk a little bit now, kind of the same type of discussion on OLED. OLED is new. Not a lot yeah. of people understand it, what their choices are. So unlike or like LCD, you tell me, are we looking at different types of backlights and edge lighting and different types of pixels? Like what's happening in OLED in terms of your choices as you build these things out that you have to decide about? So at this 24-inch uh, and 17-inch size, there's one option. And anybody who's building an OLED is using uh, that option. So okay. uh, so there's very little variability. Um, it's really all about the feature set at that point. Um, when you get to the smaller panels, uh, there's a couple different suppliers. Um, it really depends on how small you're talking, but you know there, there is a big um, kind of market out there for uh, small-scale OLEDs for consumer electronics goods. So watches and things like that. watches and phone yeah. phones is a big one. Phones. Um, right. So if you look at you know we talked about the nine hundred million dollar uh, LG investment. I think I think the latest Samsung investment in in OLED was. Uh, something on the order of three and a half billion dollars, or something like that, <laughs> and it, it shows you that that what is small is actually the bigger of the two markets. So they they are uh, those are all going into kind of small screen applications, but there's a huge huge market for that, and so there you get a little bit more variability in the types of OLED that that you have. The top emission RGB OLED is really in that 24 inch and 17 inch size is about all you can find. Of course, there's LG's variation, which is going to be interesting to see how that plays out where you actually have white, red, green, blue structure to their OLED that is very distinct from what we're offering in the 24 and a half inch size. And so that is a whole different ball game with its own advantages and its own significant challenges. Has that started hitting the pipeline yet in terms of being available for you to look at even or Yeah, the I you know um Without divulging too much of what we and other people are probably working on, I think it's safe to say that you'll see large format professional OLED monitors in the next one to two years. I, I'm pretty comfortable saying that. Well, that's great news to hear. I mean, because the big problem we have now is you put an OLED in the room and you, you set an LCD that's, you know, 40 inch next to it and... Uh, We've got some problems. Yeah, yeah, and the contrast is just something that you, you'll never get that LCD to have the type of contrast the OLED has, um, and the you know so you have to go the other way if you want at least to get the contrast kind of in the same range, and then you're doing the the dreaded thing that we see people so vehemently opposed to, which is reducing the contrast <laughs> that the OLED is, is of producing. Of the OLED. Because then you're taking away its biggest selling feature, the, the, the really great black levels. So, But you can do that. Um, so in those applications where you're forced to do that, you know, if you don't have the large OLED available quite yet, you can at a minimum kind of you know, say, hey, I'm just going to make my OLED 2,000 to 1 contrast or 1,000 to 1 contrast to match the LCD in the room or the projector in the room or whatever it may be. So it's possible to do that. But yeah, I, you know, it's it's certainly no secret that the industry is craving large format professional OLED panels. Uh, and there's been a lot of false starts. You know, there's been a lot of promise of, hey, this is coming really soon. And then 
you kind of see things fizzle. You see companies that have pulled out of large format OLED manufacturing, uh, either temporarily or um, you know supposedly permanently, and really you know throwing their hat in the ring with LCD technology instead. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's I, I think this is all going to change um, soon. You know, it remains to be seen what type of price that various companies are going to be able to do that at. Um, but one of the nice things is that, in my opinion anyway, one of the nice things is that you're really going to be limited to the suppliers as well. You know, maybe one or two large format actual raw panel suppliers. And that's going to give you a good deal of consistency throughout the industry. And that, that's something that's that's nice about that 24 and a half inch OLED is that, you know, if you have them kind of set to the same calibration standards and or they were calibrated at the same time by the same equipment, you know, you can go from brand to brand to brand. And as long as they're using that same panel, you're going to get things that look really, really similar because the native characteristics are so similar. So um, so that's been kind of nice. Uh, you get a little bit more uniformity throughout the industry if everybody's using those same types of things. Now, the behavior of those 24 and a half inch OLEDs and some of these larger format OLEDs that may be coming out, that natively may not be quite the same because they are using a little bit different of a way of implementing OLED, but should still offer a reasonably good match. And this kind of brings me to an interesting question, which is, and this is great uh, to follow up with this OLED discussion about uniformity across manufacturers. So then the question for me as an end user is, well, then how do I pick Sony versus FSI versus Panasonic? Like, what are each of you doing that takes these same basic panels and makes them professional? Yeah. So, you know, obviously what you want to look for is to to start as professional inputs and do those inputs uh, meet your needs. Um, So one thing that we do in our lineup is that if you look at our CM250, for example, um, you don't have to worry about options or, you know, licenses to activate certain inputs or, or, or you don't have to buy something that costs four times as much to get a certain capability. Basically, on our monitors, uh, even at what we consider to be a really good value for an OLED, you're getting 12-bit SDI uh, signal support so you can feed it. You know, most people are just dealing with 8 and 10-bit, but even if you have a 12-bit signal, you can feed that into the monitor. It comes with dual-link standard. It comes with a 2, 3G input standard. You can feed it 444 RGB, 444 YCPCR. You can feed it 2K. You can um, feed it XYZ signals if you want. So it, it's it's a very kind of robust feature set at a very reasonable price. And certainly we have some other companies that compete with us on price at that size, but they lack just about everything that I just listed, the 12-bit signal support, 12-bit processing, XYZ signal support, 2K signal support. You really have to go into their uber expensive, this costs more than your car monitor in order to get that feature set. And so that's one of the things I think sets us apart. The other thing, you know, all the ancillary features we have, all the scopes and things like that, which for a colorist, maybe they're not going to use that as much as they'll usually have dedicated equipment for it. But certainly for the onset guys, to be able to have that waveform vector scope parade, our exposure check features, you know, all these things built in, it makes it a more kind of robust tool set for them to use. And I think the final thing that that really I think makes us so much different than some of the big brands is that we have a much more open calibration architecture in that you can use your preferred solution to do really 
detailed high-end kind of do-it-yourself calibration with the equipment you prefer and the software you prefer and you're not kind of locked into a more simplistic calibration that that may not meet your needs it's all well and good if it measures fine but what if that red primary isn't where you need it to be according to the probe that you're using with some other systems, there's no way to adjust that. You're, you're going to be limited to, hey, I can adjust white balance and that's about it. Uh, with us, you can control every aspect of the calibration because we can import your custom lookup tables to make the calibration behave however you like. And that does it with part one of our interview with Brom Desmet. And in part two, we're going to be back talking about color spaces and calibration. My name is Patrick Inhofer. The website is towofcolorgrading.com. You can also catch me on mixinglight.com. And if you're looking for the latest and greatest in news and stay up to date with everything that's happening in the color grading community, then check out towofcolor.com backslash newsletter. I'll see you next time.